Listeners, if you enjoy the series Cults, you can find our entire catalog of episodes, plus new ones each week, free and only on Spotify. That's hundreds of episodes you won't hear anywhere else, all in one place. All you have to do is download the Spotify app for free and follow Cults to ensure you don't miss out on any of history's most radical groups. Thanks for listening to Cults, and we'll see you on Spotify. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of graphic material that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for listeners under 13. The God Has Fled was the news headline coming out of BBC One on June 1st, 1981. Quote, Without warning and without saying goodbye, his followers have been given no idea of his whereabouts, end quote. Jane Stork says, quote, I had taken my children, my husband, and gone to India to live with Rajneesh. Everything I had known, my whole world was taken apart, end quote. Jane Stork recounts the shock of watching Rajneesh in his Rolls Royce pull up to the gates of the ashram in Pune, India, and drive away, leaving the commune for the first time ever without saying a single word to anyone. She wondered, quote, if he didn't come back, what was I going to do? Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults. Today, we're going to look even closer at the followers of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh and his cult commune, dubbed Rajneesh Param, located in Wasco County, Oregon. In part one, we took a look at Rajneesh and how he established himself as an enlightened spiritual guru and charismatic leader. Then we met another one of his followers and top advisor, Ma Anand Sheila, an independent, stubborn young woman who was primed to rise through the ranks of power to eventually take the seat as Rajneesh's secretary and right-hand woman. In today's episode, we'll get to know some of the followers a bit more. These followers, who were called sannyasins, flocked by the hundreds to a newly established commune in a remote part of Oregon to build a new life together and worship and learn under Rajneesh. But Sheila's meteoric rise to power led to violent clashes with the local townspeople surrounding the commune. Fearless, antagonizing, and hot-tempered, Sheila's ardent commitment to the movement meant she would stop at nothing to ensure its survival, even murder. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on your favorite podcast directory or on our website, parcast.com. And don't forget to subscribe while you're there, because a new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast, and on Twitter at Parcast Network. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. 
Since the guru's vow of silence in April 1981, his then-personal secretary in Pune, India, named Lakshmi, had been tasked with finding new land for the sannyasins. This new land was necessary for the movement's growing numbers, which reached as high as 6,000. Rajneesh also believed that moving away from Pune, the city in India where their current commune resided, would allow them the freedom to practice their religion away from the persecution of the fundamentalist Hindus in India during this time period. Indian Prime Minister Indira Gandhi viewed Rajneesh and his followers as a threat to society. In the documentary directed by Chapman and McLean Way, Wild Wild Country, Sheila says this resulted in a gridlock and made finding new land very difficult within India. Sheila explained in her memoir, Don't Kill Him, quote, Rajneesh's press policy made this project even more difficult. He was constantly pouring new oil into the fire by generating controversies through his ideas, end quote. She said that this made it hard for Lakshmi to find a plot of land where the community was welcomed, but Rajneesh did not care. Sheila wrote, quote, His mood became worse every day. He wanted to move out right away, end quote. But Lakshmi had failed at securing the commune a new home in India. Quote, Suddenly, one day, he declared his secretary Lakshmi incompetent and fired her, end quote. Sheila then wrote that Rajneesh called on her and suddenly appointed her as his new secretary. The Oregonian, which covered the Rajneeshis extensively, paints a different picture of this transition, wherein Sheila was empowered by Rajneesh to oust Lakshmi from her position. But Sheila wrote that she did not believe that she was ready for this responsibility. She said, quote, My only strength was my love for him. Another qualification was my willingness to learn. He did not give me any choice in the matter. I had to simply accept, to trust, and to work. End quote. Sheila was homesick for her years spent in the United States. She believed that her community was suffering from religious persecution at the hand of Hindu traditionalists in India, and that the American Constitution would be the key to their freedom. She believed that America could offer them the freedom to practice their religion. And in the spring of 1981, she suggested that Rajneesh move his commune to America, and he eagerly agreed. He was immediately enthusiastic about the move, and every detail, small and large, related to the relocation became Sheila's sole responsibility. She went from taking orders to giving orders and was suddenly in charge of arranging for Rajneesh's passport, visa, and his journey to the United States. What Sheila described next was the mounting pressure she felt to appease her master, saying that she did not have the luxury to make mistakes. She wrote, quote, Let it suffice that his delicate health, overcrowding in the ashram, and the growing clashes with Orthodox Hindus ultimately led to his decision to move out of Pune, end quote. Still, many other news reports suspect the primary reason for this relocation was tax evasion in India. The community at large was kept in the dark about the move so as not to cause alarm about the uncertainty of the ashram's future. And so Sheila had no one to ask for help. Sheila wrote of this time, quote, If the sannyasins had got to know that Rajneesh was flying to the U.S., everyone would have wanted to immediately fly with him. Panic would have been inevitable. 
Many sannyasins thought their enlightenment would be jeopardized if they could not stay within sight of him, end quote. But Sheila was resourceful, as well as determined, and managed to get all of Rajneesh's paperwork settled and his flight arranged. On June 1st, 1981, with everything finally arranged, Sheila, Rajneesh, and a handful of confidants got into Rajneesh's Rolls-Royce and drove off the commune in Pune without a word to anyone else. The community was in a panic. Jane, who watched in shock as Rajneesh drove off the commune, was not the only one who wondered what would happen next. But Rajneesh had left some instruction. He had a specific message delivered. Quote, Everyone has to go back to his or her hometown for some time and put my teaching into practice in normal life. Everyone has to live in his old environment in a meditative way. They can come back when the new commune is ready, when they're invited to live within a Buddha field. End quote. This Buddha field was a promised land that Rajneesh described as being free from societal restrictions, where one could embrace life and laughter and become a truly enlightened new person. Rajneesh's well-being and the Buddha field were now Sheila's only concerns. Vanessa's going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for the show. Thanks, Greg. Margaret Singer, an expert in the field of psychology, offers some perspective on why Sheila may have been so eager to throw herself into the emotionally and physically taxing work as Rajneesh's secretary. We've discussed Singer's work previously on cults, so her work may sound familiar. Sheila was still mourning the death of her husband, Mark Silverman, who had passed the year prior in 1980 after a long battle with Hodgkin's lymphoma. She described the loss in Wild Wild Country, saying, quote, I had never known pain so deep, end quote. Singer says, quote, Almost anyone who is in a period of loneliness is in a vulnerable period in which he or she might get taken in by the flattery and deceptive lures that cults use, end quote. Rajneesh chose Sheila out of hundreds of followers to be his secretary, a very flattering proposal indeed, and the attention she received from the guru and the work she did for him likely filled the lonely space she was feeling from the loss of Mark in her life. Sheila took her duties to serve and protect her master Rajneesh very seriously. Sheila wrote, quote, All the trusted workers felt privileged to be involved in this very important event. End quote. But now it seemed she was no longer just entrusted with caring for Rajneesh. She was also at the head of the entire movement. Sheila settled Rajneesh on a piece of property in Montclair, New Jersey, a neighborhood Sheila was familiar with from her college days. Then she set out to find the perfect place for their promised land. Arrangements had been made for Rajneesh's accommodations until he could join the commune where his new place could be. Quote, we had already sent some people before to prepare the place where he would be housed until the commune and his dream house were ready. End quote. The mounting pressure to please Rajneesh, secure new land for his Buddha field, as well as manage the logistics and politics of leading an entire community, weighed heavily on Sheila. Rajneesh initially gave Sheila two months to find the new piece of land for their American commune. But as his list of demands for the property grew, the amount of time she was allotted to complete this mission shrank as he kept moving the deadline up. 
Only one week after arriving in the United States, Rajneesh expressed his disappointment in her progress, saying, quote, I know that you are unable to find the paradise for which I have been waiting for 30 years, end quote. Sheila recalled in her memoir, quote, The fear of failure was overpowering. It was not easy to work for him. He drove me to the brink of madness, end quote. She traveled around the United States looking for properties in Tennessee, Colorado, and Arizona, and wrote, quote, From being desperate, I slowly began to feel discouraged. I felt I would never be able to find the land that I had promised Rajneesh, end quote. Sheila eventually called her brother Bipin, who had been living in the United States for many years and was, according to Sheila, extremely well-connected. To her relief, instead of simply offering advice, Bipin told her that he would arrange for her to be taken to Oregon to view a property that he believed would suit all of her needs. The 31-year-old arrived in Oregon, her sights set on Big Muddy Ranch, a 64,229-acre piece of desert land, almost four hours outside of Portland. The vast, wide-open space and remoteness of the piece of property made it extremely attractive and fit right into Sheila's vision for the future of the movement. Sheila wrote, quote, It was June 11, 1981, the first death anniversary of my late husband, Mark. For me, these connections were important. I told the man that I would like to buy the land, end quote. She presented herself to the townspeople and the owners as a soft-spoken, sweet young woman and used her legal name, Sheila Silverman, rather than her sannyas, to help blend in even more. She immediately got to work to charm the local officials and ranchers in the area. She did everything she could think of to win the favor of the locals. She hosted a dance party and even purchased cattle for her ranch, despite the community being vegetarian. She described her vision for the land as a community of workers, assembling to restore the ranch and build a farm commune. Dan DeRoe, the planner they met with during the process of purchasing the land, was intrigued by what Sheila proposed for the property. Duro asked Sheila directly in one of their meetings if their group was affiliated with a religious organization. Not wanting any trouble, she said, quote, No, we celebrate life and laughter. We are simple farmers, end quote. Finally, in July of 1981, Sheila purchased the land for $5.9 million and changed the name from Big Muddy to Rancho Rajneesh. Of her success, she wrote, quote, The young, inexperienced girl from the small town of Baroda, India, had performed another miracle. End quote. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. Now, the story continues. With Rancho Rajneesh finally purchased, Ma Anand Sheila needed to make sure all of the moving parts of the commune kept moving and kept moving smoothly in the eyes of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh. Ordinary measures would not help her meet her extraordinary demands. She could no longer simply rely on the followers' devotion to Rajneesh to keep the community organized and under control. And so she set to work to build the new commune. She pushed the limits of the law to suit her own needs and the demands of Rajneesh. Sheila was informed of the zoning laws, which mandated that only about 150 people could inhabit the ranch land. 
Sheila either completely disregarded this information or had a vast misunderstanding of these laws and their implications. This law later turned out to be a huge point of contention between Rajneeshis and the community and kept the movement tied up in legal battles for the remainder of its existence in Oregon. But for now, Sheila and her small team of workers made the trek from Montclair, New Jersey, out to their new ranch land and began to prepare it for the arrival of their followers. The first people that Sheila welcomed to join her on the ranch that summer of 1981 were 20 of Sheila's closest confidants from the ashram in India. These were people she trusted with the responsibility and the secrecy involved in eventually moving Rajneesh from India and then to New Jersey and finally to Oregon. It was these followers that she immediately began to assert her dominance over. In these early moments in Oregon, as Sheila was given more responsibility and thus more power, she started to transition Rajneesh Param from a charismatic leadership to one of traditional authority. To paraphrase Weber, he argues that in traditional authority structures, the obligation to follow orders comes from a sense of personal loyalty, which is, quote, essentially unlimited, unquote. James Gordon, a psychologist who studied the movement, wrote in his book, The Golden Guru, quote, In Sheila's hands, Rajneesh's words became tools to justify the tactics she had used to establish and enlarge the ranch and the extraordinary measures she would take to protect it from dissent and doubt within, end quote. The sannyasin's loyalty to Rajneesh translated to loyalty to Sheila, which she put to good use. She took on an antagonistic approach to leadership, belittling the early sannyasins in Oregon in order to destroy any false notion that they were in any way special. One follower, Milne, wrote in his own account that Sheila dismissed the first group of workers, saying, quote, I will have no more cream puffs on my commune, end quote. Though these accounts of Sheila are particularly scornful, Sheila herself has written texts to corroborate that she did in fact feel this way towards her colleagues. Her demands created an environment that planted seeds of doubt or inadequacy in anyone struggling to meet them, not wanting to appear out of touch with their spiritual journey, or worse, showing a lack of commitment to it. The sannyasins all accepted Sheila's authority and threw themselves into the hard work of building their new community. Adrian Greek, co-director of the Positive Action Center, a cult counseling center in Portland, examines the role of this guilt in the control gained by cult leaders, particularly Rajneesh and Sheila. Greek says in an article in Oregon Magazine, quote, They induce guilt by setting up a perfect standard for you to follow, one that is humanly impossible to attain. Then, if you feel bad, it's your own fault, end quote. He then describes a cycle of thought where the follower believes the best way to rid themselves of the guilt is to be more devoted and work harder. But again, when they fall short of perfection, as all humans do, it leads to more guilt. Greek says, quote, You always feel pressure to change, and guilt because you always fall short of enlightenment, end quote. As these power dynamics formed with relative ease on the ashram in Oregon, Sheila formed the followers into an extremely productive labor force. They farmed thousands of acres of land, built a medical facility, and a public transportation system. 
They worked long and hard, often up to 12 hours a day, to build Rajneesh Puram, as it came to be called. It was meant to be their promised land, after all, and Sheila convinced them that hard work was deeply tied to spirituality. More sannyasins were slowly invited to the ranch, and together, around 100 of them carried out Sheila's vision for Rajneesh. They got prefabricated houses, or pre-cut building materials, that were easily assembled into houses. These were for new offices, and for the home of Rajneesh himself. They used their limited number of building permits to build 50 A-frame homes, which would serve as homes to the sannyasins who were already there, and those who had yet to be invited. It was only a few months before Rajneesh Puram was thriving. The sannyasins built farmland that sustained its residents. They built an electric power grid to power thousands of homes. They built plumbing infrastructure, roads. They implemented a banking operation, a meditation hall. They built their own private airport and purchased a hotel in Portland where sannyasins arriving to Oregon could stay before setting out to the ranch. There was even a shopping complex complete with its own boutique of red and orange clothes and a pizzeria. Sheila and her team, the numbers of which again vary from account to account, were so proud and enthusiastic over what they had accomplished. They had indeed built themselves a private commune that was completely unreliant on the outside world and with completely self-sufficient farming. Swami Prem Niran, a lawyer and close confidant of Rajneesh, tells Wild Wild Country, quote, We were literally turning the desert green. Sheila said in the same documentary, quote, We made this land alive with our sweat and our hard work. They should have presented us a Nobel Prize. I was so proud of not just me, proud of the whole community, that we could present this to Rajneesh, end quote. On August 29, 1981, Rajneesh arrived in Oregon and set foot for the first time on his new promised land. He was greeted with much fanfare by Sheila and the other sannyasins, who already made the move to the Buddha field. Though the commune continued to expand over the next four years, in the past two months, Sheila and her team built everything they needed for Rajneesh to join them and to worship with him. Sheila described his arrival, writing, quote, He went into his new house. He looked golden in his happiness. The sannyasins were euphoric. I was drowning in my love for him. I had created a new home where he could build a commune of the grandest vision. End quote. Not all of life was so euphoric and wonderful for the sannyasins, however. Many sannyasins have described Sheila as totalitarian, vicious, and a jealous woman. One woman named Veena had grown very close to Rajneesh over the years and soon became his personal seamstress. According to an account in Oregon Humanities by Marion Goldman, Vina recounts the fallout of Sheila's jealousy. Goldman describes an envious and resentful Sheila, displeased with Vina's close relationship with Rajneesh, as well as other sannyasins on the ranch. So Sheila exiled Vina from her comfortable room to a makeshift shelter, where she was to tend rows of bean sprouts in complete isolation. It soon came to Sheila's attention that Vina was not just making do with her new living situation, she rather enjoyed it and was even thriving. Sheila assigned her to a small, poorly insulated cabin where she became the eighth dormer. 
Sheila's strict and authoritarian behavior could not deter the sannyasins, though. Jane Stork described this evolution in Wild Wild Country, saying, quote, Over a period of time, Sheila became the focus, and it was almost by accident. Rajneesh stepped back into his house so we didn't see him, and Sheila stepped forward. And so, with time, I just became more and more devoted to her. End quote. According to psychologist Guy Claxton, professor of learning sciences at the University of Winchester, this can be explained by the idea of messianic hubris. When others, quote, make it known that they do not like this type of leadership, the leader will transpose their leadership into a sense of humility, as if they are listening to an inner god or higher power when making decisions, end quote. For Sheila, that higher power was Rajneesh, someone her disciples had already accepted as a god among men. And the sannyasins did not need to be convinced of his enlightenment. And therefore, if he had entrusted Sheila with the leadership of Rajneesh Puram, who were they to question his authority? Sheila counted on this type of surrender, as it was just what she needed to solidify her high rank in the community and keep the growing number of sannyasins in line. If things were starting to feel less than peaceful on the ranch, it was small in comparison to the growing anti-Rajneesh sentiment, as Sheila called it, off the ranch in the surrounding town. Shortly after Rajneesh arrived at the commune in 1981, 1,000 friends, a leading environmental group in Oregon, began leading a fight against the sannyasins. The environmental organization petitioned to have the buildings removed from the ranch, citing that Sheila and her fellow followers were committing land-use violations. Sheila had already reached the maximum capacity of building permits allowed on the property and exceeded the legal number of people allowed to live on the ranch, but she continued to call more and more sannyasins who had been displaced from the ashram in Pune, India, to join them in Oregon. Antelope, a sleepy, quiet community, whose residents were mostly Christian ranchers and retirees, watched as more and more sannyasins arrived at the community, dressed head to toe in red. They became worried that they would be displaced by this New Age free love cult. And it was only going to get worse, because Sheila needed more building permits as tens of thousands more sannyasins traveled to live on Rancho Rajneesh. She knew that in order to satisfy Rajneesh's vision, she would need many more than just 50 homes. Even though the official word was that only 250 people were living on the ranch, the reality was that that number in the early fall of 1981 was much closer to 1,000. If Sheila could not get more building permits, she would not have any homes for those who traveled to Oregon. Not wanting to be dependent on the outside community, but more likely hoping to have even more control over their promised land, Sheila decided to form a city. At the time, in 1981, Oregon law stated that any group of at least 150 people had the right to assemble a city by a vote of incorporation. And that's just what the sannyasins did. In October of 1981, they voted 154 to zero to incorporate their ranch into the city that became known as Rajneesh Puram. Sheila told reporters after the incorporation took place, quote, it's a very beautiful city, a city 
one which has never existed on the universe, where people live in harmony, people live in love, an example to the universe, end quote. Dashiell Edward Paulson's thesis, The Routinization of Rajneesh Puram, applies Weber's theories to Sheila's behavior on the ranch. Paulson said, quote, Sheila quickly consolidated her power after her appointment, end quote. Sheila's power was already accepted and never questioned by the followers, since traditionally, Rajneesh's secretary was always the second most powerful position in the commune. Paulson then explains, quote, she was a traditional ruler with traditional means, but she also built a large pyramid-shaped bureaucracy in order to handle the complex, demanding, and expansive development of the commune, end quote. Weber calls this pyramid a, quote, bureaucratic administrative organ, which bolstered her power, meshing her autocracy with an efficient means for action, end quote. However, in December of 1982, 1,000 Friends of Oregon, the environmental group from the state, started to pursue a lawsuit against the Rajneesh community over land use violations and attempted to have the city disincorporated. This petition enraged Sheila as she told Wild Wild Country, quote, They only used land use to deny us rights and derail us, but we were also a bit smarter. If you don't find the little loopholes in the law, it's your loss, end quote. The disputes in Oregon between the residents of Antelope and Rajneesh Param started to make national news. If Sheila would not be allowed more building permits for her ranch, she would find the space for her growing community elsewhere. She began purchasing abandoned and run-down properties in the city of Antelope as an answer to her denial for more building permits for the ranch. They bought the local cafe and changed the name to Zorba the Buddha, they bought houses that were for sale, eight plots of land, a greenhouse, the school property, and the church. Local residents refused to go to the cafe and spoke out against the commune's takeover of their quiet retirement community. The residents of the town of Antelope were desperate to maintain what they believed to be the integrity of their town. In March of 1982, they even went so far as to vote to disincorporate their own town. Many residents believed this was municipal suicide. But the town believed that if Antelope no longer existed as a city, it would no longer be of interest to the sannyasins. But the sannyasins also voted in this election, and Antelope failed to get the votes they needed to disincorporate. Sheila believed this backlash to their presence in Antelope was fueled by ignorant prejudices. There was a media frenzy. Sheila made appearances on the Merv Griffin, Donahue, and Crossfire shows, as well as a number of other news and talk shows. She unapologetically declared time and again that Rajneesh Param was here to stay. She was fearless, aggressive, and provocative, and she appeared to love every minute of the media attention. Her appearances were always marked by her characteristic bite and antagonism. When told by a news reporter that people didn't want her community in Oregon, she famously retorted, quote, tough titties. She bragged about the number of Rolls Royces the ranch was collecting for their master, once correcting another guest on the show, saying there were not 16, there were now 19 Rolls Royces. 
Sheila's growing media presence, her fierce conviction, and her fiery retorts made her a media sensation. The more press that Sheila got, the more press Rajneesh got, and his movement grew in popularity and spread throughout the world. Smaller versions of the commune in Oregon were established in Italy, Germany, England, India, Australia, and Japan. Each of these centers supported themselves by forming a variety of businesses. Some offered construction services, others opened restaurants or dance clubs. But one thing all Rajneesh centers had in common is that each of them would fly into Oregon to celebrate World Festival. It was a five-day celebration that culminated in Master's Day, a special time set aside which honored Rajneesh and was the peak day of the festivities. Numbering in the tens of thousands, international sannyasins spent World Festival dancing, eating, sunbathing, and meditating. The festival was a giant celebration meant to raise morale, and it also served to raise a great deal of money for the ranch. Sheila believed that the number of working sannyasins by 1983 was 30,000 worldwide, and that the number of devotees that had not yet taken sannyas, a vow of surrender to Rajneesh, numbered as high as 500,000, a number that is still disputed to this day. After the successful bid to incorporate, which meant they were now a legal independent city, Rajneesh Param elected sannyasins to former Antelope City Council seats, and in January of 1983, they held six of the seven seats. John Silverman held the only non-Rajneesh seat. Despite Sheila's success at keeping Rajneesh Param incorporated, her troubles with the outside world were only just beginning. We'll return to our story in just a moment from the ParCast Network. And now, back to cults. In July of 1983, Ma Anand Sheila received a phone call in the middle of the night. The Rajneesh Hotel in Portland had been bombed. The attack amassed $200,000 worth of damage to the property. The LA Times reported that the bomber, Stephen P. Pastor, did not present a motive for the attack, but that he, quote, belonged to a militant fundamentalist Muslim organization, end quote. The Rajneesh community immediately blamed the attack on the bigoted and hateful communities in Oregon. In her memoir, Sheila wrote, quote, We understood that the police and the courts were not on our side. The state did not only do nothing to protect our rights, it even deliberately violated them, end quote. She believed that if she did not take drastic measures to protect Rajneesh Param, no one else would. After the bombing, they felt the threat of danger all around them. So Sheila and the sannyasins decided to arm themselves by purchasing weapons and learning how to properly use them. Still an incorporated city, Rajneesh Param had their own police force, which they called the Peace Force. However, Antelope residents said they were anything but peaceful. This law enforcement unit employed intimidation tactics and harassed the town more than they kept the peace. They patrolled the town of Antelope at night, flashing the lights of their police cars into the homes of Antelope residents. The police force even arrested a local Antelope picketer for menacing, charges that Wasco County immediately dropped. 
The tension and distrust between the two communities continued to escalate, fueled by a great deal of paranoia between the cult and town. This aggressive police force was one of the main reasons that the city of Rajneeshpuram came under scrutiny in 1983. Dave Fronmeyer, the state attorney general of Oregon, grew up near Antelope and was still close to several of its residents. These residents had a direct pipeline to him, and they used it. They argued that Rajneesh Puram was not an agricultural group like they claimed, but in fact a religious organization. This drew concern over whether the new city was honoring the separation of church and state. And many believed that the police force was not loyal to the governing laws, but only to their spiritual master. In October of 1983, the Attorney General ruled that Rajneesh Puram was to be nullified as a city since it violated federal and state guarantees of the First Amendment's separation of church and state. The ruling was met by outcries of bigotry and religious persecution by the Rajneeshis, but Sheila would not be swayed from her course. Quote, how can we solve the problem, she asked in Wild Wild Country. The more creative we were, the more destructive the politicians were against us. It was their hate that forced us to take these steps for self-preservation, self-protection, self-survival." Jane Stork told Wild Wild Country, quote, "...the people of Oregon knew then that we were armed, that we could use our weapons well, and that we were prepared to use those weapons if push came to shove." End quote. Jane, who was living in India when Rajneesh fled the ashram in Pune, eventually made the move to the ranch and was noted by Sheila as a particularly skilled marksman. This could be one of the reasons why Jane was pulled into Sheila's tight-knit circle, a group that Jane described as Sheila's lieutenants. This group of women frequently met in Sheila's home, a complex of bungalows on the ranch that was referred to as Jesus Grove. Jane describes an evening where she was called out of her bed in the middle of the night and asked to come to Sheila's home. She complied, and when she arrived in Jesus Grove, she was asked to wax Sheila's legs, which she did. Jane said after that she was moved into one of the many rooms in Sheila's house and invited with regularity to be a part of Sheila's evening briefings. As the only one that Rajneesh confided in, Sheila was privy to pertinent and often very privileged and private information about the plans for the ranch and about Rajneesh himself. Every night, Sheila would regale her inner circle with messages and anecdotes from Rajneesh. This group was the first to know what big plans Rajneesh and Sheila had for the ranch. And soon, a new plan had hatched. In September of 1984, Sheila announced the Share a Home project, which was presented as a humanitarian effort to alleviate the suffering of the poor. Through this program, thousands of homeless people from all over the United States were picked up on buses and driven into the ranch in Oregon. Sheila told Wild Wild Country that her program was for the good of humanity, that they cleaned up these homeless people, gave them health care, food and shelter, and a purpose in life. But the whole affair was not as innocent as it seemed. The buses started arriving in September of 1984, dropping off thousands of new potential Rajneesh Puram residents just two months before the Wasco County November election. 
Sheila announced that two Rajneeshis would be running in the election as write-in candidates. The influx of homeless people now at the ranch, many of whom took great joy from their new community, were to be registered just in time to vote. And their high numbers were sure to tip the election in favor of the Rajneesh candidates. The floods of new people to the ranch did not go unnoticed, however. The Secretary of State in Oregon, Norma Paulus, was forced to step in and halted the registration process for the new voters. Though this applied to all new voters, it was a targeted step to prevent what the state offices believed to be a high probability of election fraud. Sheila was outraged, but she would stop at nothing to win this election. Her self-righteousness over her religious convictions and her fury over the limitations of the political climate pushed her to violent means. According to Jane in Wild Wild Country, Sheila began to make a list of enemies of the sannyasins, and Sheila was no longer talking about winning elections. No, Jane said, her talks turned to violence and soon murder. The same month that the Share a Home initiative began, September of 1984, Ma Anand Puja, a nurse at the Rajneesh Medical Center, placed orders for biochemical weapons. According to Wynne McCormick, based on information eventually provided to authorities by those who worked under Puja, she and Sheila spent some time deciding on the right pathogen to bring on to the ranch. They decided on Salmonella typhimurium, a common agent in food poisoning. Puja's order arrived, and she set about to cultivate the Salmonella with the intention to unleash the volatile pathogens in Wasco County. Time Magazine's Philip Elmer DeWitt called this concoction a salsa of salmonella that was doused on salad bars across Wasco County. Elmer DeWitt reported years later that, quote, they put it in blue cheese dressing, tabletop coffee creamers, and potato salads at 10 local restaurants and at supermarkets, all with the intention to incapacitate voters in the upcoming election and gain control of the county through local politics. In October of 1984, nearly 1,000 residents were taken ill by this biochemical attack, which was the first of its kind on American soil. Though the Epidemic Intelligence Services and the Center for Disease Control and Prevention initially placed the blame on food handlers, unsure of how the outbreak could have occurred, there was one politician who was certain he knew the origin of the outbreak. Jim Weaver, Oregon congressman at the time, was not convinced that the bacteria had spread coincidentally. He told Wynne McCormick, quote, It is impossible for salmonella bacteria to spread throughout so many different restaurants that have no common linkage except by deliberate human agency, end quote. Weaver was outspokenly convinced that the Rajneeshis had poisoned his town, but there was no proof of this attack until many months later. In a press conference, Jane took to the podium to defend her community. She said, quote, We're going to infect the world with joy and laughter of epidemic proportions, end quote. With the challenges to register the new homeless people as Oregon voters in Rajneesh Puram, the Share a Home project was proving unsuccessful as well. Registration hearings were held an hour or so outside of Rajneeshpuram and made the trek difficult to complete with so many people. 
In mid-October of 1984, the Rajneeshis announced that their recruiting period for Share a Home had ended, and that there would be no more buses bringing in new homeless people. This was due to tensions escalating between the homeless contingency on the ranch and the sannyasins. Jane described one particularly frightening incident between Sheila and one unnamed homeless man. This man was furious that he was being denied the right to register as a voter and had become agitated. He attacked Sheila, grabbing her by the throat and lifted her off the ground. Sheila and the other sannyasins managed to de-escalate the confrontation, and the man was driven off the ranch and left on a park bench some miles away. With many more of the new homeless people on the commune behaving erratically and often violently, and their inability to participate in the upcoming election, the Share a Home project was failing. Sheila had barely escaped the endeavor with her life. Soon after Sheila's violent encounter, Haldol, a sedative, was added to all the beer on the ranch without anyone's knowledge. The sannyasins said that this was done to keep the homeless Rajneeshis calm and under control, since many of them were afflicted with addictions or other mental issues that made them unpredictable and sometimes violent. Whatever the reason, it didn't matter. On November 4, 1984, their bid to gain seats on the Wasco County City Council ended abruptly in failure, when their write-in candidates failed to get elected. Everything that Sheila had worked so hard for began to come apart. A group from Los Angeles, nicknamed the Hollywood Crowd, were lured to Oregon by Rajneesh's teachings. One woman, Ma Anand Hasya, the former wife of the producer of The Godfather, was a particular point of contention for Sheila. Hasya and her ex-husband, who were also part of the Hollywood Crowd, gave hundreds of thousands of dollars to Rajneesh and adorned him with diamond watches and other expensive gifts. Hasya gained Rajneesh's favor and soon was spending more and more time in Rajneesh's home without Sheila. Many sannyasins have since described Sheila as bitterly jealous, and Jane told Wild Wild Country that Sheila soon learned that the Hollywood crowd was plying Rajneesh with drugs, particularly laughing gas and Valium. Sheila was mortified and betrayed by this news. Her master, this man to whom she had dedicated so much of herself and for whom she had done so much work, was not even following his own teachings to live life purely. And above all, he had lied to her about it. Sheila was not just jealous and betrayed, though. She truly believed in the work they were doing on the commune and once again saw the future of the movement at risk. She angrily confronted her master about his drug use, saying, quote, All these facts posed a great danger for Rajneesh and the commune. Drug use and abuse would have been an opportunity sent by God to a government waiting for a long time for something to charge us with. End quote. She begged him to stop, to think of his teachings, to think of his followers. But Rajneesh simply told Sheila to stay out of it. Sheila was furious. How could he be so careless? How could he be so dismissive of all of her hard work? It was more than she could bear. Sheila had Rajneesh's house wiretapped so she could listen to his conversations with the Hollywood crowd, especially Hasya. Through these means, Sheila learned that Rajneesh's personal doctor, Devaraj, was involved in supplying Rajneesh with his drugs as well. 
The issue of illegal drug use added to Rajneesh's precarious position with the law. Already, Rajneesh's visa status came under scrutiny, and Oregon officials were mounting an investigation over the charges of immigration fraud and sham marriages believed to be taking place within the community. U.S. Attorney General for the District of Oregon, Charles Turner, became enemy number one to Sheila, as he was the one who could make or break Rajneesh's case. And despite feeling betrayed by the recent revelations, she still felt the need to prove herself to the guru. Jane recalled her shock in the spring of 1985, when talks in Jesus Grove turned to cold-blooded murder as a means of ridding themselves of A.G. Turner. One night, Sheila was discussing the best course of action, and she volunteered Jane, who she noted was still an excellent gunshot, to take out Turner. Jane describes her trip in May of 1985 into Portland to execute the plan. She met another woman in the city who provided her with street clothes so that she could blend into the city. She spent the day waiting outside of the park house, where General Turner was expected to exit the building, gun ready. But fortunately for Turner, he never arrived. Jane returned to the commune, where discussions resumed over other ways to eliminate Turner, but nothing more ever materialized. The state continued to mount an immigration case against the Rajneeshis with charges of conspiracy to defraud the government. But for now, Rajneesh's status in America was safe. However, Sheila discovered some troubling news. According to Jane, Sheila heard via wiretap that Rajneesh asked his doctor, Devaraj, how to induce a painless, dignified death. Devaraj described a cocktail of chemicals that would do the job, and so was ordered to acquire them for the guru. Shortly thereafter, Rajneesh told Sheila himself that he was planning his own death for July 6, 1985, Master's Day, the biggest day of celebration at the World Festival. The news was deeply upsetting to Sheila. What would happen to the commune without their leader? She could not just let such a thing happen, so she immediately jumped into action. Sheila wrote in her memoir, quote, I was not prepared to compromise for what I considered right, and my integrity was always staunchly aligned with the welfare of Rajneesh and his commune. With me, it was always about whether the commune and its people are happy and healthy. I considered it my duty to offer maximum protection, end quote. She was wary of Devaraj's motives and wrote, quote, Unlike Devaraj, I would never have been able to say, he is my master and I will give him any medications he wants, just to show my devotion to him. Jane remembers the meeting that took place in Jesus Grove where Sheila relayed this information to her close inner circle. Sheila told them that to save their guru's life, they needed to kill Devaraj. Jane described a heavy silence. No one volunteered until finally one person came forward. Jane said it was she who raised her hand. She said in Wild Wild Country, quote, It was all about Rajneesh. Rajneesh must live. Sheila arranged in private to provide the tools necessary to complete this task to Jane, one poison-laden syringe. Jane described the day during the World Festival in 1985 that this took place. Quote, I approached Devaraj, and as he leaned towards me, I pushed the syringe into him. There was a bit of a struggle. I got it out again and threw it away. 
As he staggered away from me, I turned and walked away. I wanted to be alone. There was the part of me who felt I had saved Rajneesh's life. I had done what I had to do. But deep inside of me, I was shattered. I had grown up clearly understanding that thou shall not kill. And now, I tried to kill somebody. Devaraj survived the attack, but was hospitalized for several weeks. After the attack, Sheila began to deteriorate. She began to buckle beneath the pressure to keep her seat as secretary and to keep the commune running. Sheila described her growing disagreements with Rajneesh about his drug use and said that her brother, who was visiting the commune, encouraged her to step away from the madness of Rajneesh Param. She wrote, quote, I was the heart of the commune and he was the soul, the inspiration. We were a team, but now he had retreated in part from his role. The spirit of his teachings could no longer be felt. He had lost interest in us as a community. I was not prepared to take responsibility for his people and commune all by myself. Moreover, I no longer want to deal with his constant crazy demands." End quote. Their power struggle would be the downfall of the commune. In September of 1985, Sheila left the commune with Jane and a few other close confidants in tow. They flew to Germany, where they stayed in a German Rajneesh center, but they were not welcome there for long. Rajneesh broke his public silence in that same month and set out to publicly destroy Sheila, smearing her name and accusing her of atrocious criminal behavior, including attempted murder and the poisonings that took place on and off the ranch. Their feud was internationally publicized, with Sheila calling Rajneesh out as a con man who exploited and manipulated his followers. Of her, he said, quote, she is just going more and more insane. Either she will kill herself out of the very burden of all the crimes that she has done, or she will have to suffer her whole life in imprisonment." End quote. A great sense of shock, anxiety, and uncertainty swept through the ranch. Many sannyasins described to news reporters feelings of depression, betrayal, confusion, and pain. The community remained divided over their feuding leaders. Some sannyasins described Sheila's departure with relief, saying that they were glad to finally be rid of her power-hungry dominance. Jane told Wild Wild Country, quote, Whether you loved Sheila or hated her, she did her job really well, and she did it for him. I felt that he had betrayed her royally, end quote. Rajneesh's accusations of Sheila began immediately after she left in September of 1985 and opened the commune up to many investigations. The federal authorities now had grounds to enter the commune with search warrants. And in October that same year, the authorities descended on the ranch in a raid. What they found was beyond anything they could have imagined. They discovered elaborate wiretappings, illegal drugs, a laboratory that tied the salmonella poisonings to the ranch. They found plans to assassinate Attorney General Turner and elaborate schemes for arranged marriages which fell under the charge, conspiracy to defraud the government. Rajneesh forbade his followers from cooperating with the authorities. Rajneesh and many of his followers still maintain that he had no knowledge of any illegal activity and that the raid was stemmed from a hatred of the group and a sole wish to see it destroyed. 
Regardless, the federal and state governments built airtight cases against Rajneesh and his other top advisors who had been involved in the massive conspiracy. Charges included 35 counts to defraud the United States, first-degree assault, attempted murder, and illegal wiretapping. In 1985, this was the largest illegal wiretapping scheme in the U.S., according to General Fronmeier. Still hiding out in Germany, Sheila, Jane Stork, and Ma Anand Puja, who was linked to the Salmonella outbreak, among other crimes, now had warrants for their arrest. Sheila, Jane, and her comrades were arrested in Germany and eventually extradited back to the United States. Ma Anand Sheila was imprisoned for her involvement in the mass poisonings and wiretappings, but was paroled after just 29 months for good behavior. Ma Anand Puja spent 39 months in jail, and Jane Stork also served three years for her role in the various crimes of the cult. Rajneesh was arrested in October of 1985 and charged with immigration violations and conspiracy charges, two of which he pled guilty to. His plea resulted in a deal where he was fined $400,000 and forced to leave the United States. The Rolls-Royces and other property on the ranch were sold to cover legal fees, and the community began to disband. By the end of 1986, 18 other Rajneeshis had also been convicted of crimes in Oregon. Many remember the ranch as some of the best years of their lives and still believe that Rajneesh's teachings were revolutionary and truly enlightening. They believe that their master remained misunderstood, and many still follow his teachings to this day. But Rajneesh himself called Rajneesh Puram, quote, a beautiful experiment that failed. Rajneesh eventually returned to the ashram in Pune, India in 1987, where he remained until his death of heart failure in 1990. Before his death, Rajneesh declared, quote, When I am dead, I am dead. There is no question of succession, end quote. Success and longevity of the movement, Sheila claimed, were always her highest priorities. It was this question of succession which drove Sheila to take such violent measures in Oregon. In the end, these same measures she hoped would ensure its survival inevitably led to its demise. Thanks again for tuning in to Cults. If you want to listen to any previous episodes of Cults, you can find them on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Google Play, Stitcher, and Spotify, or on our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on social media. We're on Facebook and Instagram as at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. It seems simple, but it really helps our show. And don't forget to join us next week for another episode of Cults. Cults was created by Max Cutler and is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire, Carly Madden, and Jeanette Manning. Cults is written by Lisa Fry and stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Thanks for listening to Cults. 
Here's a reminder that you can find hundreds of shockingly true stories, episodes you won't hear anywhere else, by following Cults, free and only on Spotify.